Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Welcome to one more edition of Politics on Right on KPFT. My name is Egberto Willis, your host. Thank you so kindly for being here with us. Today we have three great, great, great guests. The worldwide distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine exposes the immorality of our current economic system. Dr. Dean Baker, economist, sheds important light. Ben Smilowitz, Executive Director, Disaster Accountability Project, discusses the need to use the DPA to create billions of vaccines. And lastly, J. Christopher Collins, author of Mending Our Union, Healing Our Communities Through Courageous Conversations, brings people together. We have a lot to talk about. Before we get started, please remember to go to kpft.org, kpft.org. Please support this station. You know we do the work that's necessary to bring that progressive message to you via Politics Done Right. So please go to kpft.org and donate, support these programs that really make a difference in people's lives. But you know what? Without further ado, let's get busy. I'm honored to be with Dr. Dean Baker, who's an economist and co-founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Dr. Baker, thank you so kindly for uh, catching up with us at this uh, sort of a, right, I should say opportune time. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I am doing great. Look, um, Dr. Baker, let me tell you, I've been very concerned about these, these vaccines. First of all, I am happy that we got it done. But there are, there are a few things that I think a lot of people don't understand in the beginning, and that is, uh, while the vaccines were rather quick, the technology was just there and ready for this occurrence. The RNA research, all of that was done by the, private, by the public sector for a long time. Universities have been working on this for a while. Uh, I just saw a report in Common Dreams where there is an issue with the WTO and making this vaccine, these vaccines readily available around the world. And um, this is because of patenting and, and profits, et cetera. So why don't you please give me your rundown as far as what's happening and what you think should occur with these vaccines and putting them throughout the world? Yeah, so what we're seeing is that we have now successful vaccines, both the Pfizer and the Moderna. I don't know if the FDA has actually approved Moderna yet. It's probably going to do it if it hasn't done it today, tomorrow. I mean, it's literally any day now. So with successful vaccines... But the problem is that we have inadequate supplies and the United States and other rich countries have locked up much of the supply of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines really through 221. And what that means is there'll be little available for much of the world, for the poor countries in the world. And what's going on is that the the WTO, there's a resolution before the World Trade Organization, put forward by South Africa and India, that would suspend and patent and other intellectual property rights, not just on vaccines, but also on treatments, because we know there are issues with, well, it was Generon, the treatment that mm-hmm. uh, Donald Trump took, and apparently it's very effective. There are patents on these that are limiting production of that. 
So this resolution would call for suspending patent rights for the duration of the pandemic. So what that would mean is that any manufacturer anywhere in the world that they had ability to produce these vaccines or these treatments would be able to do so at least through the, through the duration of the pandemic. So in principle, that could allow vaccines to be spread much more quickly and hopefully get, you know, get the pandemic under control, not just in the United States and Europe, but throughout the world. Now, what I found disconcerting is, uh, you know, I always talk about many of the European countries being more enlightened. They have uh, somewhat Medicare for all type system throughout the world. So they, they put more emphasis in humanity than we do as a country. And it surprised me that the countries that were against uh, uh, suspending the patent, not eliminating the patent, but suspending the patents wouldn't do so. We had Japan in there. We had the UK. We had the European Union. All these guys are saying, no, we don't want to do that. What's your thoughts on that? Well, there are two things going on. The bigger one is that all these countries uh, have their own pharmaceutical industries. And they're very powerful, just as they are here. So as much as we might think our government gets corrupted by, by big business, by the pharmaceutical industry, well, you have big pharmaceutical companies in, in Germany, in France, in, in the Netherlands. You know? so, so same story applies there, so that their, their, uh, their industries are demanding. You don't, they, don't want this, they see it as a bad precedent. And the other part is there's some sense of solidarity, uh, in this case, a pernicious solidarity. You'd like to see them have solidarity with... Uh, the people throughout the world, low-income people throughout the world who need to be protected from this pandemic, but their solidarity is with other rich countries. So it's it's very hard to break. Um, on the plus side, I, I will just say something here that, you know, it, it's rare that you get outright victories. So I would love to see that, you know, South Africa and India taking the lead and put this forward. I'd love to see the U.S. and Europe and go, yeah, that's right. You know, they, they you know, you know, part of the point, you know, that I made and others on, uh, about this is that they've already been paid. So it's not as though we're, we're Pfizer won't be well compensated. They're already being paid. Moderna, they've already been paid. So, so they just might not be getting as much money as they might hope. But what we might see, and I think we are seeing out of this, is that even if they don't actually suspend the patent rights, we've created pressure on these companies to have licensing to, to, basically disperse their vaccines much more quickly than they might have otherwise. So even if they still nominally maintain the patent rights, they'll negotiate with manufacturers in India and Brazil, countries that have manufacturing capacity and allow them to manufacture their vaccines or the, the other treatments. So I think it's not necessarily what I would want to see. I want to see anyone who could produce this stuff produce it. But I think it brings to bear pressure that has a real, real outcome, real effect. Now, based on your knowledge, these companies, they have the technology already to produce it, and they know the formulas, the regenerations and all these things to make these products, don't they? Well, you have sophisticated manufacturing facilities in, in many developing countries. Certainly, India is the foremost manufacturing, uh, uh, pharmaceutical manufacturing in the world. Now, these particular, can they just uh, reverse engineer you know, the vaccine from Pfizer from uh, Moderna, that I don't know the answer to. I've heard conflicting things on that because they say, oh, it's very complex. And then I've heard other people who are experts, which I'm not, say, well, actually it's not that complex. So I, I don't have the answer to that. What I will say is that if Moderna, if Pfizer, if they acted in good faith, they would transfer the know-how. So we wouldn't have to have this argument. So I, I don't know whether you know, the, the engineers in India could just go, oh, we know how to do this and, you know, get, you know, obviously not tomorrow, but we're talking mm -hmm. two, three months down the road. 
or, or whether they would actually need someone at Moderna, someone involved in manufacturing to show them exactly what to do. That I can't answer. But, you know, again, what we would like is for them to transfer the technology. Well, look, I'm not a, I'm not a uh, biologist either. I'm, an, I'm just a, an engineer. But here's what's interesting. Uh, the, the person who sort of developed a lot of the spike protein technologies right here in Houston, where I'm at, I don't remember the name of the doctor right now. But interestingly, um, I, I think you're on to something when you said, uh, well, some of them say that it's easy and just maybe a lot of this stuff has to do with it. Not be, look, the fact that it came out in nine months, Dr. Baker, probably means it's not all that uh, complex. I mean, that's right. So, so the fact was, no one was producing this nine months ago. So, you know, Moderna was able to ramp up and be prepared to produce it in, you know, I don't know, four months, five months, I don't know right. when they first started and same with Pfizer. So this isn't talking about, we aren't talking about something that takes years and years. And again, important point to keep in mind, no one thinks that the whole world will be vaccinated by the end of this year or next year, I should say the 221. So even if we have facilities that don't come online until July, August, September, that will still mean people get vaccinated much, much earlier than would otherwise be the case. Now, um, you're, you're one of our, what I call a progressive capitalist. I, I don't consider myself a capitalist at all, but I understand where you're coming from. Don't you think that these kinds of issues really put a black eye on everything that uh, this economic system stands for? Where the livelihood, where the lives of people are dependent on a profit motive somehow? Well, I guess I'd say two things on that. It really depends. Capitalism, better or worse, is an enormously flexible system. So that's why I don't envision a world where it gets overthrown because you could have a, a million and one permutations. It could change, and it does change. Mm -hmm. And in this particular case, what I'd argue is for a big change in the sense that we don't have to finance the development of drugs and vaccines the way we currently do with patent monopolies. Mm -hmm. So suppose, and we actually did do this with Moderna. We literally paid for their development up front. So suppose that was our general policy. I don't expect people to work for free. So we pay companies up front. They could be capitalist profit-making companies, but they're going to get paid. Their, their profit will be on doing the research. Once it's done, everything is 100% in the public domain. So we have a new drug, a new vaccine. Anyone who wants to could produce it. So then we don't have have these big problems that oh here's this really rare life-saving drug and you know it's gonna they're gonna charge us a hundred thousand for it well if anyone could produce it it's not gonna be really rare now there can well be some exceptions but those will be few and far between so the cases we look at where something's very expensive and low-income people can't get it either in the united states or in the developing world those for the most part wouldn't exist so i say it really depends how we structure it and i think the way we do it now is pretty awful now dr baker you've I think you've spoken a whole lot about rents and, and when you talk about all, all these particular issues. So, so I, I mean, um, I think, to, to put it bluntly, I think to some extent that is happening, but we're being conned because most of this research occurs, this RNA research occurred at, uh, at uh, Rochester University and many other universities, okay? Paid for by? Yeah. By us, right? In, in yeah. effect, I think we're kind of doing that right now, but I think we're being, t uh, I think there are charlatans that are really, uh, taken over. I'd like you to kind of tell America that, that we're already paying for this stuff. Yeah, well, th this is a really extreme case. I mean, we paid, you know, a huge amount of research was paid for by the National Institutes of Health, by private, private public universities. And then what you see is you get Moderna and Pfizer, you know, saying, oh, you know, look, we had this great innovation. And just to be clear, it is a great innovation. But 
the vast majority of the funding came from the public sector and the big technology you mentioned before, discovering the coronavirus spike protein. That was done entirely on the public's dime. So, you know, for them to then turn around and say, oh, you know, we get this patent monopoly, we get to charge, and you know, and if you try to interfere with our monopoly, you're stealing from us. They say that. You go, no, no, we're just, we paid for it already. You guys got paid for it. And more generally, again, I think this is an extreme case, but more generally, we spend over 40 billion a year. We mean the US government spends over 40 billion a year on the National Institutes of Health. And everyone agrees, they do enormously important, valuable research. And, and what happens is, they do in many cases the big, you know, big the heavy lifting that the pharmaceutical industry then works from, and they go ahead and get a patent, and then charge us a lot of money for the drugs. So again, my view is rather than doing it that way, let's just pick up the whole tab. Don't just pick up the tab for the basic and sometimes even follow-on research. Let's pick up the whole tab and then just have it be produces generic, you know, and they still make money. So I'm being a capitalist here. You know, they'll they'll get paid for their you're trying to curve capitalism into it no matter what. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. You know know what is interesting because what you said said is absolutely right. But (laughs) I I mean I I I just think that if uh, more if, if more of you got out there to get that message out because a lot of people don't know they really just think oh uh you you want the government to take over everything it's like no the government's already doing it so uh you know let's yeah, let's no, be real in, here in, invariably they try to t- turn this argument to a stupid argument so no i'm not going to have the central planning agency of drugs to sign everything that's going to be designed and, you know, people want to say, oh, the government can't do anything right. I go, oh, so you want to get rid of the 40 billion that we give to? Oh, no, 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 they do that well. I mean, that's why their position on this is absurd. And I've debated people from the industry and they, they, they would have us believe, oh, we give it to NIH to do more basic research. And again, much of their research is beyond basic. But in any case, we'll just leave that. And that's very good. But if we ask them to parcel out the money, again, they're not doing it in-house. They give it to universities, they have private contractors. If they were to say, oh, develop drugs, then we might as well just throw it in the toilet. Exactly. And that's actually why Moderna is so important, because we gave them a billion dollars. And what they do, they developed a good vaccine very quickly. Exactly. Exactly. You know, the tenet behind this system is uh, maximization of monies for the shareholder. Well, the best way to maximize the money for the shareholder is get the proof of concept paid for by the public. And then you take over the spoils. Yes, and that, that's that's what we have now, and it's an awful, awful system. I mean, it's both wasteful in terms of money, but people's lives. I mean, we, we, we have drugs that should be very cheap, and, you know, it's difficult for many people or impossible for them to afford them. We can look at insulin. We can look at the AIDS cocktail that was denied the rest of the world because they couldn't afford it, how many millions of lives we lost. That is one of the reasons why I say all the time, unless you're – unless you – at, at best, your form of capitalism is what we have. I think we have a, we don't have an, an easy future going forward because eventually people are going to react to what we're seeing today. Eventually people will react. Your thoughts on that? Well, this is a horribly, you know, unjust system. And, you know, again, it's, we, we, everyone understands if there's real scarcity in the world, you know, we all want a big house or whatever, fine. We can't all have a big house. We can understand that. But in this case, that's not even the issue. You know, we're, we're just keeping drugs, we're keeping vaccines from people so that some companies can make really high profits. And that's just a crazy system. And in this case, it's not just, you know, a bigger house or something. It's literally people's lives. And unfortunately, 
we have a system which really cherishes false scarcity. I'm glad you used the word scarcity because much of our pricing increase in healthcare or pricing increases in a lot of places, it's a lot about false scarcity. Absolutely. And this is this is 100% false scarcity because it just it would not be an issue if we didn't have the patent monopolies at stake. Dr. Baker, thank you so kindly for uh, allowing me to interview you on this short notice. But I think this is a subject that's at hand right now and a lot of our audience, something that they're talking about. So thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. Thanks a lot for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Today, I'm here with Ben Smilowitz, Executive Director of Disaster Accountability Project. Maybe El Senor uh, Trump should have seek some help from people who are less biased than those here speaking to. How are you doing, Ben? Welcome to Politics Done Right. Doing okay. Thank you for having me. Great. Hey, Ben, before we get started, uh, the, 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 the group that you formed is called Disaster Accountability Project. Just so that we can get centered here, tell us a little bit about that group and what is it that you uh, that you guys do and other organizations like yours do? So um, essentially the organization I started after Hurricane Katrina to serve as a watchdog of disaster relief and humanitarian aid. There's no other organization that does this work and there are so many recommendations that follow disasters that if not implemented will cause us to say, will cause us to make the same mistakes over and over. So we really need to make improvements when we realize where the mistakes are so that we can save lives and reduce suffering after disasters. We work on a range of issues from local, state, national, and even global. So we're looking at, um, at humanitarian funding and how organizations raise uh, donations. And we're looking at imp- improving the, the response to COVID here in the US. Now, you recently uh, wrote an op-ed at um, The Hill, and I think you're pretty critical of the administration and on how they were getting the drugs in and exactly what's taken so darn long for us to ramp up to, uh, to produce these drugs, uh, or rather these vaccines. Tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that. So the vaccine was done at, at extremely fast pace, and so I'm very grateful to all the the doctors and scientists that, that made that happen. But now it's the job for the US government to get those vaccine doses to everyone that, that, need, that need them. And so what we're seeing is that the US government is contracting with the pharmaceuticals, but we're working at the pace of the pharmaceutical industry. The US government has the tools using Defense Production Act to scale production, to increase productive capacity, which means that if the pharmaceutical industry doesn't have the equipment and the space and the people to make a billion doses instead of 100,000, the US government can help. The US government has the, the legal authority and I mean, we've done shock and awe all over the world. We say that we're the best, right? So let's do a billion, let's do a billion per month, right? I mean. Not only do, do these vaccines need uh, two doses for, you know, a, to be effective and, and protect people from COVID, but not, and, and we have to vaccinate our own country, but the whole world needs this vaccine, right? And urgently, like our recovery for our economy won't recover, if you want to think about it that way, until the whole world is, is vaccinated. But just from a humanitarian perspective, there's tremendous demand, we could be producing for the whole world right now 
and make our money back. So why don't we? We're talking about waiting until summer and later, right, for these vaccines. That's at the pharmaceuticals pace. The U.S. government can do a lot better than that. Well, I mean, uh, you're in, first of all, let me just, uh, uh, you, don't, you, you don't take political positions, so, uh, and, and I respect that, uh, but you're in a political show. And one of the reasons that I wanted to have you here as well is to give the unbiased, uh, what's happening in an unbiased fashion. In other words, what you stated is perfectly true. What you stated is we have the capacity as Americans, as our industrial base, to ramp up to any number of vaccines that are necessary to produce. You are absolutely right. I want to hear from an unbiased person what the reason is why we're not doing that, and then I'll give my opinion on that. Look, the, the report that was written after Katrina was called Failure of Initiative, right? This is the report that Congress wrote about the U.S. government response, a failure of initiative. We could write the same story now. You know, the people that are dying are people of color, right? Uh, people with disabilities, elderly, people in nursing homes. So... I don't think that there's as much urgency in uh, our federal government, in the White House, in Congress to act. I mean, look, they haven't been able to pass an aid bill for months. People are, you know, hanging on. Many people aren't even hanging on right now, economically. Um, we haven't been able to take care of our people for the last, you know, many months with COVID, almost a year. And now there's not as much urgency about the vaccine. You know, when when uh, the president or Giuliani or anyone member of Congress, you know, gets sick, they get, you know, top tier treatment. Everyone else doesn't have access to the same um, interventions and, and therapies that, you know, these people are getting. So the whole country needs this vaccine. We have vaccines. I trust science. I trust public health experts. They've done their time. Like, you know, they've, they're, they're putting themselves at risk to, to protect the rest of us. Now it's our turn to not only get the vaccine, but to make sure that it, it's available to everyone. Now, interestingly, I think, first of all, I think you were quite kind to uh, the reasons. I think those are partially the reasons. The, 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 wrong, the wrong people are the most affected. So I think you're right about that. Uh, now, as well, if you take a look at um, how quickly the vaccine was developed, I think a lot of it is misrepresented. Uh, the, the technology for this type of vaccine has been in existence for quite some time. A lot of research went into it as soon as the genome was released by the Chinese uh, person illegally, according to Ch the, the Chinese government. Uh, Moderna and these guys were able to uh, come up with the genome immediately or, or present find the spikes, etc. So all of that was this lightning speed that makes it look like things were uh, that lightning speed, I think is, a, is somewhat a misnomer. But what you also said is that much of what happened is that it's the wrong people that are really affected. But I think it's even deeper. You made a mention about money. Uh, to, if the government started, co corporations really, in my opinion, and you can tell me otherwise, don't really want the government to start building up infrastructure to do what they want to do because scarcity determines high prices. And I think in the long run, if, there, there, if there's enough manufacturing capabilities, et cetera, there's no reason for scarcity. And if there's no reason for scarcity, that means then that uh, 
pricing can go through the roof like they're charging the government right now. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't think the government wants to be in the long-term business of making vaccines. I, I think that, um, you know, we're just reading the news in the last day, the, the CEO of Pfizer told the White House and, you know, Health and Human Services, yes, go for it. Use Defense Production Act. <laughs> like, if you want to increase productive capacity, go for it. I don't, I think right now, um, industry just doesn't have the capacity to scale as fast as uh, needed. And I think that the style of this White House is to try to make a deal instead of compel anyone to, to, to do something. And so they're still trying to make a deal instead of just putting their foot down and saying, do it. <laughs> and I think that the next administration will be more likely to just say, do it and not wait for the deal that strokes the ego. Uh, I am, I am going to have you on again, if the next administration gets into full fledged production, uh, as opposed to being, you know, I, I know that the, the company said, Oh yeah, please go ahead and ramp up if you can. But I know that uh, that cannot be based on how we kind of me work. I wonder how genuous that could really be. Um, now, so what, how are you going to try to influence the government going forward to execute, as you've mentioned? Well, I think as citizens, we can we have tools at our disposal to make some noise and put pressure. Um, you know, we're we haven't really gotten what we need in the last year, so it would be a little bit silly to expect that all of a sudden they're going to do what needs to be done, but we're lucky to have a change in administration and then we'll hold the next administration accountable as well. So um, as advocates, we'll continue to push hard. We've, I mean, we, we had our own legislation that we've been trying to push to allow states. Your company, tell us a little bit about that. That's important. I, I read that in your article. Yeah. So we actually got a piece of legislation drafted um, that allows states to use the Defense Production Act themselves after declared disasters, only around production and prioritization, and in-state only. The idea is that a state would be able to tell industry in their state, we want more PPE, you know, personal protective equipment, so make more. Or, oh, I see you make PPE, we're going to buy from you directly instead of having those goods first go through out-of-state supply chains and then come back five times the price, right? Right now, states are buying goods at the same rate as everybody else, private sector, government. Everyone's paying these really inflated rates because the government can't buy goods at a government rate, the state governments. The federal government, they use Defense Production Act 300,000 times a year. I don't think people realize the federal government. I don't, I, you you mentioned that in the article. I wanted to know if that was actually a misprint in the article. I took that. This is a New York Times story that that talks about how many times the federal government prioritizes contracts at the federal level. Now, this is, you know, for often for defense, for military, they want to buy something. They don't want to wait in line. Right. They want to buy it on a federal price schedule. So they say we're going to use Defense Production Act and take these goods or buy these goods at this price right now. We're not going to wait for everyone else to buy it first or for you to fulfill your contracts with everyone else. We want it right now. Now, if the federal government does that 300,000 times a year, 
they bragged recently about using Defense Production Act for COVID like 80 times. After all, so, one is buying bullets and the other one is buying lives, right? Well, there you go. It Make, makes, makes a lot more sense if you're saving lives than buying bullets. Um, so I, I, I guess your first throw at the, at, at the government is your article with the expectation that it'll get recognition like it did here and, and that more people push that article. And I think uh, that's an important start for us to, um, to work with because I think unless people, you know, in our program, what we do a whole lot, uh, Ben, is we try to tell people that you have a lot more power than you think you have. And uh, that, you know, politicians listen to the corporate dollar because that's, that's, that's who performed for them. But when they realize that that, co- that person given a whole lot of corporate dollars only has one vote as that person who may give 25 cents or a dollar, uh, they, they, once we as citizens realize that, we start to act. And I think it's important what you've done to uh, put this type of, uh, uh, to put this article out. Now, what, uh, what should I have asked you or what other information do you want to tell us that I didn't get to? Well, I, I think it's important for people to know that, you know, they ha- I think you're totally right. People have more power than they think. And we live in a, in a special country where people can speak up and challenge their government. And we have rights to do that where in, around the world, people do not have the same, the same rights and privileges that we have. So we should use them. Uh, responsibly and to advance, you know, these life-saving, uh, these, you know, agendas. Um, so I, I welcome anyone to check out our website. Um, you know, not only are we trying to advocate for an improved COVID response here in the U.S., but when disasters happen all over the world, people tend to give money generously, but they often give to the wrong places. Explain, meaning, explain. Meaning people give to the, the big names they know, the big international organizations that have the, a brand name that everyone knows. But oftentimes those big organizations are not the ones actually working themselves on the ground, resp- responding to the disaster. So what happens is the money goes to the big organization. And then those organizations, they uh, delay and often divert funds that maybe they take 10% and wait six months to a year or more before releasing those funds. And 10% is generous, but let's take 10. And they release those funds to someone else, another like subcontractor, sub organization partner. And then sometimes it changes hands multiple times before reaching the local organization on the ground. And the UN was using a number that as much as two or 3% actually ends up reaching the local uh, local nonprofits or local organizations. So we built a platform called Smart Response. And I know you're a, you have a background in computer programming. Mm-hmm. We recruited a, a team of volunteer developers from around the world to help us build this platform. And organizations, these local organizations from all over the world are registering on this platform and sharing data about themselves. So that when a disaster happens, we can curate a localized list and then donors can directly connect to the local organizations and bypass unnecessary intermediaries. And we don't take a cut. We're not an intermediary ourselves. We're not processing transactions ourselves. We're simply connecting a donor, like watching this, after a disaster, like in Haiti or Nepal, somewhere in the, you know, there were just big storms in Nicaragua and in Central America. But all over the world, there are these, you know, often climate 
cause disasters and people want to help and they should be able to connect directly with these local organizations, support them. And then you see 99 or 97% of the money, you know, minus whatever transaction fee is incurred by that organization for their transactions, reaching the organization that's intended. And we think we can improve disaster relief and humanitarian aid, uh, the effectiveness by hundreds of millions of dollars globally with this platform. That is a that's a perfect tool. That is something that is necessary out there. You 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 said something that that I think people have to realize, uh, and it's so important. We give the big name organizations where the CEO of those organizations are making a half a million dollars a year. So when you're donating to a lot of these guys, that is where your money is going first. And then you talk about being held. When they're being held, they who knows what they're capitalizing. And after they do that, then they give to subcontractors who themselves have their cut. And finally, as you mentioned, three to four percent get to the people who really need the money. That is that is blasphemous. Yeah, there's there are a lot of problems in this world. And um, the more that we learned after the Haiti earthquake and the Nepal earthquake, and we, we built this platform with the incredible generosity of, of volunteers platform works you know we want to we're making improvements all the time but um, so far 570 organizations have self-registered from over 57 countries and 24 U.S. states we want to try to reach a couple thousand organizations and so we do that and we also do advocacy and you know for our work is supported by individuals just like you know this this show and and other you know good causes so we're asking people to consider us in their end of year donations. Um, and we're a nonprofit, so it's a tax deduction. And we're, you know, we're, we're committed to improving disaster relief and humanitarian aid. That is excellent. Let me tell you, uh, Ben Smilowitz, Executive Director of Disaster Accountability Project. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. Thank you for having me. Okay, folks, don't forget we need your support. We have one more piece to play, so please go ahead and go to kpft.org. kpft.org. Provide support to these programs. Provide support for the progressive message. Provide support for helping out throughout the country, throughout the state. You know what? The progressive message is here for a purpose. Please give us a call, 713-526-5738, 713-526-5738, or just go ahead and give your donations to kpft.org. Welcome to one more edition of Politics Done Right. I'm Egberto Willis. As you know, we've been covering how we can actually get folks communicating in all corners. Well, today we have Chris Collins, who's the author of the new book, Mending Our Union, Healing Our Communities Through Courageous Conversation. He has spent the last several years facilitating meetings that bring together people from a vast selection of politics, races, genders, and class as a part of his conversation group at the Glide Memorial Church in San Francisco, different together, and has developed a toolkit for doing so. He offers four tips, and we're going to talk about all of that. Welcome to Politics Done Right. How are you doing today, Chris? Great. Thanks for having me. Before we even get started, I understand that uh, you did a stint in Austin, Texas, my old stumping ground. That's right. I lived there for seven years. I went to St. Edwards University, and uh, after graduating there, I worked in the Texas legislature for a couple of years before um, moving to New York City, actually. Before we go, you remember Conan's Pizza? 
Yes. I love my, those deep dish Chicago style Conan's pizza. That, that was my mainstay in Austin. And, and by the way, uh, while I went to school out there at the University of Texas, I was a delivery driver for Tuck's Pizza on uh, near St. Edwards, and I had a lot of time, a lot of deliveries to St. Edwards University. It's interesting. There's lots of there's lots of food in Austin that I miss. There's a lot of food, and now they have the truck alley and all that good stuff there, where you can go ahead and buy. Well, I don't know since COVID how things are, but anyhow, let's talk about your book. Uh, well, before we talk about your book, tell me a little bit about yourself. So I am uh, a native Texan. I grew up in McKinney, Texas. Uh, my family's been in Texas for uh, multiple generations. Um, I uh, got a, a, a calling in my early life in high school to, to uh, become involved in, in public service in one way or another. I didn't really know what that looked like. And uh, as you mentioned, I went to uh, uh, St. Edwards University and got involved with uh, working in uh, the Texas legislature. And um, I um, then went to uh, New York University to get my master's in, in public administration and public policy. And um, I, I've noticed over the years that it doesn't really matter what policies we, we advocate for, what politicians or presidents we, we vote for, uh, the, the division in our country stops most of that from happening. Any, any policies that we want, any, any, um, any reforms that we want, division grinds most of that to a halt. So uh, there's something bigger that we need to be working on. I agree with that wholeheartedly. In fact, um, that, that was the genesis of my last book, which was about talking to the other side, uh, how to talk. In my case, as a progressive, how, do, how can progressives talk to your right-wing relatives and friends or whatever? I mean, here I am, a, a left-wing progressive with relatives who've actually voted, well, not relatives, a couple of relatives who've actually supported Donald Trump. And it's like, I can't believe we are in such, we're, we grew up together and we're in such different spaces. That division is real. And I think it is, um, I think it is, the division is real. The causation of the division, I think it's a fallacy. Your thoughts on that? What do you mean when you say the, the thought, the, let me give it. Let me give an example of, and, and this I put in in in, uh, and, and I, I haven't read your entire book, so I don't know if you have something similar to this, but if you ask the average American citizen what are their wants, what are their needs, it turns out that the similarity between wants and needs, absent certain social and religious issues, are virtually identical. Have you seen that in the research and and the work that you've done? Yes, absolutely. I, 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 I think that that's beyond question that we all want the, the, the same thing. The, the division comes in how we get there. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a debate of tactics and um, a desire to be for that. We want our solutions to be the ones that fix it. We don't want someone else's solutions to fix it. There's a, uh, there's a desire to, to want to be the victor and, Getting what, getting what we all want rather than maybe a combination of solutions or um, acknowledging the, the truth that maybe a, a different perspective might have 
some uh, idea that might help help us get there. It's a it's a it's a it's a system of winners and losers, and it's not going to uh, it's not going to help us, it's, and it's not helping us. Uh, I I'm also a, a progressive, um, but I have to acknowledge that sometimes uh, conservative thought has uh, valid uh, ideas that need to be taken into consideration. That is interesting because uh, you could find those words in, 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 in the things that we talk about here as well. And it's great to see that you have a book out there that's all, also centralizing on that type of message in which I think it is very, very important. Now, um, in, in, in that light, let's put a little bit of meat on those bones um, because uh, give me, if you will, some examples that you find we want the same thing, but the approach that we want to take to get there are different. Uh, are these appro- are both, from your point of view on whatever issue you choose, will those either side get you to the same place for real, or is it that one side, uh, one side is misinformed as far as being able to get there from that direction? Because my thing here, and, I, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, my thing is that I think we are purposely misled because in our, in our ignorance and fighting among each other, it's a profit for a certain sect. Your thoughts? Well, I think that there's, there's the system that's out there that, um, that promotes a certain message that is, uh, there, there is misinformation out there. And there are uh, fake facts that are out there. And um, I think that where we make progress on this is tuning that out to to stop relying on what the politics are trying to uh, Mm -hmm. tell us and instead talk about it at the community level and find out what solutions we come up with whenever we tune out the, the, the toxic political discourse. Now tell some of our, tell our audience in specifics, uh, give me an example of where we can actually accomplish that. So what we do in different together, uh, for example, let's talk about uh, the impeachment that mm-hmm. happened um, which seems like a long time ago is actually earlier <laughs> this year. Months, yeah. Right. Uh, we hosted a, a conversation between progressives and conservatives on the impeachment, and um, we split the topic up into digestible categories. So, for example, what are the facts of this situation that we all agree on, and different perspectives throw out different ideas where there was a, a uh, maybe a, a progressive person would uh, make a statement that a conservative does not agree with. We would then put that into a different category and write it on a, write it on our whiteboard. Okay. This is what we don't agree on. This is what we would need to further investigate in order to uh, figure out where we are on this. Then um, we have, can have a category for, uh, what are the values? What do we want? What do we What do we expect of our uh, elected officials? Put that in a category. What do we 
what do we agree on that we should expect from people? So whenever we parse a difficult topic out, it, it, it begins to breathe life into the concept of having a conversation about it. It did not turn into a debate over um, Trump is a criminal, no, he's not a criminal, and just that, that leads us nowhere. That's, that's the same thing we can turn on uh, any cable news station and, and fulfill that. We're trying to have a different conversation to try to find where our conversations are breaking down and get past that, go past beyond where the conversations break down. Now that is that is admirable, right? We we have some. Um, there's a professor that I work with here at Lone Star College, and he works with the Kettering Foundation on having these. Uh, there's deliberate deliberate debate uh, deliberative debates. I think it's called, where we, we we do something similar to what you've just said, and it works. the The problem that we find is that the people that are able to go to these things are are you know people that are. Put together they don't have to take care of their kids all of that and we can bring those people in together what kind of and i don't know if you explained that in your book what when you talk about communities uh, through courageous conversations how can we have courageous conversations in communities that don't have the wherewithal to come to a church where we have some snacks for them to do these types of debates uh, what 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 do you foresee as a way that we can actually have these types of dialogues among the majority of the voters, to put it bluntly. Thank you for bringing that up because uh, I can say that participation in Different Together, as well as the, uh, the nationwide movement of bridge building are people like me, mm -hmm. middle-class white people. Mm -hmm. That demographic alone is not going to heal this country. This is uh, something that we have to be inclusive beyond race, beyond class, beyond religion, beyond socioeconomic status. To, so how do we have those conversations when um, it's when, whenever the, the availability to come to meetings is not necessarily the same across all of these different demographics. And the way that I see it is, and that whenever we have a different together meeting in an event, that's just a laboratory. It's mm -hmm. a place for us to practice. It's not necessarily where community healing happens. It, it can, but that I don't, I don't want us to think that us showing up to this meeting occasionally is going, is going to heal it. It's, it's us to come together and practice and then go back out into our worlds, into our workplaces, into our families, walking down the sidewalk. How do we heal the division at that point? Are we dismissive of people? Are we, or do we ignore um, need and hurt and pain in our communities? Do we, um, or do we engage with it? Do we open our hearts? Do we want to listen? And that is where we have the power to be healers in our communities is in, in our everyday life. Are you saying then that uh, your your groups pretty much are disciple makers with the expectation that they will go out into the communities and replicate themselves? I think that um, people that attend these types of meetings, yes, they are they are better equipped to go out and to 
and to live in this world with a softened heart. Let's, um, you brought up religion, race, etc. Let's go to Appalachia, okay, uh, where I think uh, at this point in our history, I feel that these are the most scared people that have not had much good happen to them. And they, they see a whole lot of uh, the rest of America talking about inclusivity and, 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 and going and supporting the aggrieved. Um, how do you talk to these folks to let them know that nobody, in my opinion, is taking something from them there? You can't take something one has never had. How do you get into those communities? Because I, I, I think... What's going on in America today? I think there are a lot of there are a lot of undertones, and tell me if you agree with this or not. I think there are a lot of undertones that are masked by other issues, and I think one of the big undertone in America, and you hear progressives talk a lot about it, race, religion, that sort of a thing, but I do think it plays a part. And if you take a look at the demographics of the even the last election, uh, you sort of see that. How do we? get to those who believe, because I think it has to start somewhere. How do you get to those who believe that if you get something, it means my loss, I've lost something that I hold dear? Right. I think that we do see uh, many times this as a zero-sum game. I think that it's a matter of reassessing what progress looks like. There is so much mistrust in the system, uh, especially with uh, the, the the people that you describe. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what does what does progress look like if if it is to um, help them see that you know we are not out to get them? Right. Well, that might be a uh, a, a difficult uh, task to. Uh, accomplish in the next couple of years. Can I can I interrupt you for a quick second? Because I want to give you some kudos first of all. Uh, important kudos. I think you are uh, you are in a position to do that so much better than many others. Uh, and I, I, remember that I said that. Please continue, and then I'm going to pick that up on on afterwards. Okay. So I think that we've got to see this as a long term process and a long-term solution. Mm-hmm. Um, for right now, we are so divided and there's so much mistrust in our country that I think that we have to think about what is just enough, what's just enough to for us to release our grip and for there to be more trust. For So for right now, I think that might just be to listen and listen to things that we strongly, strongly disagree with and think are factually uh, way out there. Um, I think that that begins to lower the temperature and to build trust. And how long we have to do that, I don't know. But that, I believe, is the path forward. And once we begin to establish trust, then we can have a more factual debate. Okay, I, w- I agree. I agree with that. I want to add a little bit more. And because as a white guy from Texas, with a Texas history, I think more so than many, a lot of guys like that can actually go into these areas 
and do a hell of a lot of listening with some talking. And believe it or not, I think a lot of times that may be where we fail. And I think that is where we've allowed cancers to grow the, the, uh, by those who have that opportunity to, I don't want to say set the record straight because that goes against the tenet of doing more listening than, than, than talking, but being able to show that uh, there, you know, maybe there are other ways to look at things. And that's why I say, I think guys like you who are, who, who are doing this kind of work in certain areas, not in San Francisco, but in Appalachia, you would make a hell of a lot of difference. Well, and I would also uh, clarify that, I, I, well, and I try to make clear in the book that um, I'm not asking black people, people of color, marginalized people to do this work. I believe it's me and people who are like me, other middle-class white guys to take this on, to be the, to be the ones that are listening. From, uh, from talking with uh, people who are in marginalized communities, they tell me they, they've been doing this for their whole lives, but mm -hmm. the problem is that people aren't listening. Mm -hmm. People are being dismissive. So in order to listen to these, to, to the pain that's, that are, that's in our community, we have to really open our heart and 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 be open to hear some uh, some realities that me in my life I've never had to deal with, and I have to then struggle with how do I how do I live with that? How do I um, how do I take the the privilege that I have in my life and squeeze everything out of it in order to help heal all of these divisions, including racism and classism? You know what is interesting, and I, I wish to that everybody that said that had the understanding also that that you just said. Actually, I loved hearing when you said it's not a zero sum gain. That that the growth of the growth of all comes with this unification, if you will. The growth of all comes with all of us being able to be a part of what America's dream is. So let me ask you because I I, I want to be I, I want to do this right uh, for the people that. First of all, folks need to get books that do the kind of work that you're talking about, books that aren't there to divide. Tell, in a short synopsis, what is your book about? What do you intend to, what do you want to come out of your book from those who read the book and those who pass it along? So when I was starting uh, the Different Together Project at Glide Memorial Church, I was looking for a book that could give me a guide about what I was about to encounter. And what I have written is that book, a book for people that are concerned about division, want to do something, but don't necessarily know what to do. Uh, I believe that, that the book is a, is a guide that has um, relevant stories based on the front line of this, of this domestic peace building movement. And um, I try to reveal what it is like to do this and let let the readers know that this is not easy work that whenever i hear statements of well if we all uh, agree on the same we, we all believe in the same thing so if we just listen everything will be okay it's much much more complicated than that there are mental and spiritual roadblocks set up all along this path and what i 
try to help uh, facilitate with the readers is that whenever we get to the point of wanting to give up, where a conversation gets tense, where we feel like we don't have the qualifications to do this work, that is exactly the time whenever we need to double down and keep going because it's difficult work, it's going to get complicated and it's gonna get hard. So I want to use my story and my experience to help people realize that I started this thing. I'm not, I'm, I'm not uniquely qualified for it, but I learned over uh, the course of time and I just try to share what I've learned to help bring more people into this movement. Thank you for having been on Politics Then Right. Thank you so much. And that does it. Thank you so kindly for listening to Politics Done Right on KPFT. Please remember to go to kpft.org. Go to kpft.org and support this station. Support this station to ensure we can keep the progressive message going. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics Done Right, and you know how I end this, baby. I am what? Out! Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. <laughs>